in your face. I am joined by Dennis Altman, who has written Death in the Sauna. It's a gay who done it. Dennis, welcome to the show. Thank you. You must have had so much fun writing it. I did. I think I've had um, more fun doing that than anything else I've ever written. It's like playing an elaborate computer game. Um, and uh, the great thing about it is that I myself didn't know who did it till I was almost at the end of the book. Yeah, it's uh, got lots of twists and turns. Uh, it's set in London about 20 years ago on the eve of an international HIV-AIDS conference and uh, the head of a global HIV organisation is found dead in the sauna and there are lots of suspects. There are indeed. And it was, of course... Um uh, fun setting it in London, partly I think because it's a bit of a spoof of the traditional British crime novel, um, and as in all the traditional, the best of those British uh, old-style mysteries, uh, there have to be a number of people, all of whom have the, the means, the motive and the opportunity, uh, which is easier to dream up than you might imagine. Well, there's also so much intrigue historically that surrounded gay organisations and now queer organisations and, of course, HIV organisations with, you know, big money and uh, politics and, and, and all of that. And, of course, you've worked in that area. You've had lots to do with that sector for, for decades. So that background must have given you something to work with. Look, I think... Um and, of course, nobody in the book, I hasten to add, is based on a real character. But certainly some of the incidents <clears throat> and some of the comments around organising a big conference do come directly out of experiences I've had. And interestingly, there's going to be a big HIV conference in three weeks up in Brisbane. Um, and I'm doing a bookshop event up there to coincide with the conference. So I'm waiting to see if uh, any of the uh, international AIDS world show up and demand that I retract um, the comments I've made about them. You also captured the, you know, subterfuge and the, and the fact that people can just lose themselves in saunas and, and that anonymity, but also that kind of, you know, intrigue. Um, what a great place to find a dead body. Uh, look, I'm not the first person to have uh, thought of writing a murder story set in a sauna. There are a couple of others. Um, it's always struck me as almost the perfect venue, uh, if you think about it, for all the reasons you've outlined. Um, it is, of course, today much more difficult. One of the reasons for setting the book 20 years ago is that's before the sort of um, thorough ID checks. I mean, now to go into a gay sauna, you have to produce photo ID. Um, 20 years ago, that wasn't the case. And as one of the uh, guys working on the desk in the book says, you'd be amazed how many times Prince Edward and Mickey Mouse have signed in. Yeah, and it was pre all the CCTV cameras as well. I know exactly, there were some, yes. but, you know, much harder these days. But, um, yeah, good call setting it 20 years ago. Um, why London? I think partly for the reason I said that it is, in a way, a spoof of... Uh, the Agatha Christie style a detective story. But also I think there is a way in which your imagination as a writer is stretched. If you go to a city that you know but you haven't lived in, which is my case with London, um, 
it somehow gives you a greater freedom. It also, I think, made it easier not to draw on real people. I mean, the fact is I had to invent people. My fear is, had I set it in Melbourne, where we've had two very big international AIDS conferences in the last 20 years, um, I might have been... I might too easily have used real people and not disguise them. So setting them in London actually was probably a good device for an author. Also, a bit of it takes place in Brighton. And I was surprised how vividly I could imagine or remember Brighton. I've only been there a couple of times. But I could actually smell the rancid fish and chips on what the British like to call a beach at at the Brighton Shores. Dennis, you must have been tempted to say it in Melbourne. <laughs> um, no, but I, no really? I wasn't. I think that, I mean, I can think of, um, I can think of other possible murder stories that could be set in either Melbourne or Sydney, uh, both of which are cities I've lived in, but so far I'm resisting the temptation. I mean, you've written many, many books. This is your first novel. People seem to love the fact that you wrote this crime novel. Well, you know, it's not my first novel. I did actually, about 20 years ago, I wrote a novel called The Comfort of Men, which I think quite rightly has disappeared into obscurity. Um, It's certainly the first time I've written a genre. And I think that's a very different type of writing because... A detective story is essentially plot-driven. And as you said at the beginning, there are lots of twists. There are red herrings. You hope that most of them are explained by the end of the book. Uh, You hope also you don't have people who are too critical when they figure out that they're not totally explained. But it is a very different sort of writing to what I've normally done, yes. So tell us the backstory. Like I, I, I read that your kind of, you know, your stimulation, if you like, for writing this book was during Melbourne's lockdowns and going for long walks. It was indeed. And I went for long walks with my friend Tom. Um, if you, you will remember, everybody listening probably will remember when our social life was confined to going for walks within our 5K zone. So we went for several long walks around Fairfield. And for some reason, I'm not sure why, I said to Tom, you know, I've always thought it'd be great to write a story that began with a body in a sauna. And then, so we invented the plot. And um, we actually started writing it together, but... Pretty quickly, Tom said, look, I think you should do this. And although certainly there are uh, a lot of parts of the plot we work together, none of his lines are still in the book because in the course of writing and rewriting, I, of course, had to, to have my own voice as the author. Did writing this book feel different? You've written so many books and you must kind of, you know, go into that zone with each one. But did this one feel different? And if so, how did it feel? Um, I think it felt different because in a funny way it became extremely real. That is, the characters became real people for me. And there was a real sense of sadness when I finished Now, normally when you have a writing task, particularly a book, which is, you know, a fairly major writing task, there is, I think, a sense of relief when you've reached the point where you say, okay, that's it. I know it could be a lot better, but at some point I'm going to give it up and hand it over and see what happens. 
In this case, it was almost the opposite. I can remember quite vividly waking up the day after my editor had said, well, that's it. Now it goes to the printer, so we can't have any more changes. And I remember waking up and feeling quite sad that I couldn't add anything further. The The story was told, that was it. Now it's out there. Now I have to just wait for the process of publication. Do you still miss the characters? Um, I don't think I miss them. I have wondered every now and then whether there are any of them whom I would like to revive in a totally different context. And I think that may still happen, but certainly at this stage I have no firm plans. I mean, it's not, this is not the beginning of um, a gay Miss Marple series. But if you could revive one of those characters in a different setting, any idea who it would be? Well, interestingly, it probably would be someone who is not one of the most central characters. Um, And there are reasons for that, but I'm not going to... Because one has to write, I think that that what I learned is that to write a plausible mystery, you can only write about worlds you know well. And as you said, I do know the international HIV world pretty well. I know saunas pretty well. Um, In fact, I, I, I could certainly write another story set in a sauna, but I think I've done that. So I have been vaguely thinking of something which would be set in a university, uh, which is, of course, a setting I know extremely well. Um, And that, in a sense, limits the people. And so it may well end up that Rahid, who is both a masseur in the sauna and an almost completed PhD student, might well emigrate to a mythical university on the Queensland coast. But that's a long way off, James. I haven't started writing that. You know, I'm not surprised you mentioned him because I I could kind of sense when when reading the book that you really liked that character. And just (laughs) when you were talking, I could imagine you, you know, transposing him into a university. Yes. Well, indeed, because he is, of course, he wants to be an academic. Um, Probably a very silly thing to want in the modern world, but there you are. Right, Okay. Is there any character you fell in love with? Um, No, I don't think... Well, possibly Winston. Uh, Winston is the attendant in the bathhouse who gets the opening line of the book because he's the person who discovers the body. And Winston is, I think, typical of a certain sort of young gay guy who likes to have a lot of sexual adventures and is very wary of getting involved with anyone. And, you know, there's a side of me that would quite like to take Winston under my wing. But he is a a fictional character, so I think, you know, it's not going to happen. He's not going to pop up on Grindr tonight. Who was the most fun to write? Sorry? Who was the most fun? Like, was there one <laughs> character that was just so much fun that you just kept wanting to write and, and develop them and you loved kind of going through those development processes with? Yes, but at the same time, I was very conscious that I think a murder story has should not be too long. I mean, I took my 
lead, in a sense, from Agatha Christie. The average length of an Agatha Christie book is 55,000 words. Mine comes out at, I think, 62 and a half. Most contemporary thrillers or whodunit are much longer than that. And the reality is that I think readers lose patience because this is not great literature. This is a book you read for entertainment. My hope with this book is that people will buy it because they've got to sit on the train to Shepparton or they've got to take a flight to Adelaide. They'll read it during the trip. When they get to the other end, they'll give it to a friend. Um, It's that sort of book. And so I quite deliberately didn't want it to be any longer than it is. Well, it's a fun read, Death in the Sauna, published by Clouds of Magellan. Dennis Altman, always great to chat on 3CR. Indeed. Good to talk to you, James. Open-minded, I'm so blinded, mystery man, woman phantom, pilot light smears the atmosphere, I'm so scared but I'm standing here, is what I'm seeing real or is it just a sound? Is it all this virtual We could be to Radical Radio 3CR. I'm delighted to be joined by DJ Phil Solomon, a.k.a. Goat Spokesperson. Phil, how are you? Pretty good. Pretty good, yes. 
My God, last time we chatted, you were about to go to Germany. It was July last year, and I said to you, you're going to go whoosh. And indeed you have. Ever since you opened that Folsom party in Berlin, you have been in demand here in Melbourne as a DJ. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's kind of wild. I, I kind of never really considered that I could have a, a career as a DJ, and I don't necessarily have a career, but it feels dangerously close to a job now. <laughs> and that must feel great. Now, your ambition was to play at Trough. You achieved that, but not only did you achieve it, you closed the party. Yeah, yeah the last two Troughs I've, uh, I've uh, closed. The last one I actually closed it with, um, I did a back-to-back with uh, DJ Jack Hardman, uh, who is uh, one of my DJ idols in Melbourne. So that was pretty amazing. Yeah. Now, what's next for you? I mean, you are in demand. Um, it is becoming a job for you. And you kind of, you know, the community loves your sets. Yeah. I, 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 I've somehow gotten myself into this... Uh, uh, a, a bit of a reputation for playing sexy parties. <laughs> the last few parties that I've played, there's been... Um, sex on premises, which is quite interesting. I don't know whether it's my style that's got getting me that, or just my connections in the community. But it's fun. I, I the thing is, I actually started DJing because I was kind of in awe of uh, stereogamists, and in particular Johnny Seymour from Sydney, who used to play at an infamous um, sauna in in Sydney. Um, and actually he released a few of his sets as the sauna sessions. And I think that kind of captured my imagination, even as a young twink. Um, and I, and I was like, I want to play for people having sex as well. So I've achieved that dream. And it must be Uh, kind of uninhibited to, to DJ in that environment. It must make you kind of, you know, a bit unhinged in a way that makes you take risks with the choices that you make as a, as a DJ. I, I don't know, to be honest. I, sometimes I worry that my music might be a little weird for people trying to uh, get it on. Um, I, I, um, I, I, definitely, I definitely play something more than what you would expect at a sauna, I think. Um, I, I like to kind of play songs with like kind of silly but also sexy lyrics. Uh, I've been getting into a lot of ghetto tech recently, which, um, it, you know, the lyrics are generally quite filthy and I love them. Um, and and but it, must yeah. be, it must be great to actually be playing to audiences again because, I mean, we spoke during lockdown when you were mm. doing virtual DJing. Now, that was kind of yeah. fun, but are you relieved to be back with a crowd again in person? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Like play, playing to a Zoom meeting <laughs> is not is less fun than it sounds. <laughs> so, you know, uh, yeah, definitely glad to, to have people around responding, you know. You recently came out as having ADHD. It must be a relief to have that diagnosis, yeah? Yeah, yeah it explains so much. Um, you know, I have five jobs, uh, not really exaggerating that. And, um, and also just the, the kind of stress of, not being able to meet people's deadlines or not understanding people when they're trying to communicate things to me and just like being feeling quite sort of um, 
I guess, out of touch with the world in some ways. So, yeah, this diagnosis has really helped me kind of feel more comfortable in who I am and, and kind of understand myself a little bit better. So many people seem to be getting ADHD diagnosis at the moment. Why do you think that is? Does it, is it, do you think the world we live in with so many computer screens is kind of exasperating it? I, I, I would really not be surprised. I think, especially within my friendship circle, I have tons of people with ADHD. Uh, so it was no surprise for me um, to kind of finally get that diagnosis. But I think the world as it is now uh, will only make things worse, I think. Um, I mean, just the ability to be able to be on the phone while you're on the bog. Um, it's like a whole, a whole other um, level of distraction that I, I'm just not surprised. I'm really not surprised that it's becoming more and more prevalent. I mean, you've got a profile in the community coming out with it. Do you find that, you know, that has meant that other people are kind of saying to you, yeah, I've got it as well, and you kind of, you know, in this peer support environment? Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I'm one of the late bloomers, to be completely honest. I mean, a lot of my friends have had it and have been, um, you know, um, using various coping strategies for, for years now. And, you know, just by watching them and learning about their lives, did I realize that I myself had it? So it was almost as if the, the support network was there for me before I even came out. Phil, what's next on the DJ front? Uh, in terms of DJing, I have Adam's eighth birthday party on Monday. I'll be closing that, so that should be fun. Adam's a nude night that happens every Monday at Circuit in Collingwood. Um, and apart from that, I don't have anything actually lined up for a little while um and but the big thing that's coming up for me which is in no way related to djing is a exhibition in in uh, brisbane in september um and it's called a great pyramid exclamation mark um and it's about the great pyramid in egypt and kind of the kind of mystical properties of of ancient wonders and all kinds of crazy things. Wow, sounds amazing. Getting back to your Egyptian roots and interpreting them uh, and going yeah. to Queensland in the warmer weather, that must be lovely as well. Phil Solomon, <laughs> always a joy to hear your voice. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, James. Phil Solomon there. Up real soon, Simon Ruth, talking about Thorn Harbour's 40 years. Um, amazing that they've been going and thriving that long, giving so much to the community. In the meantime, though, he's taming parlour.
Tammy and Paula there. I'm delighted to have Simon Ruth, the CEO of Thorn Harbour Health, in the studio 40 years. Happy birthday, Thorn Harbour. Thank you. It's, it's very exciting and very happy to be here. Wow. Tell us about that inaugural meeting 40 years ago at the Laird. Yeah, so just before that, there was a meeting at the dental hospital, um, which had about 400 gay men and a few lesbians in the room and a bunch of middle-aged doctors on stage. And Phil Carswell, our inaugural president, he recalls that the only piece of advice they could give was don't have sex with Americans and don't go to America because all the information was coming out of the States at that time. And Phil said the gay games had just been held in San Francisco earlier that year. And he said, so a lot of the men in the room had had sex with a lot of Americans and had been in America. And he said, terror ran through the room. And at some point, Alison Thorne, who I think was probably 21 at the time, um, ran on stage, took a microphone and said, we need to do something about this. We need to organise and we're going to form an organisation to deal with it. And then there was a meeting a couple of weeks later at the Laird on the 12th of July and the inaugural board of 11 men and Alison got elected. Um, I'm pretty sure they were mostly in their 20s. They were a pretty young crew. Um, they were all far-left activists. They were all involved in the rights movement at the time. And, you know, from there, there was a lot of fear at that time. It got very, it got a lot worse for the next 10 years or so. Um, and then in 1996, we, we saw combination treatment and things started to look better. And now 40 years later, we've broadened our remit. We've rebranded the organisation Um, We're doing a lot more in mental health and drug and alcohol, family violence programs. We run Equinox, the largest trans health service in the country. Um, So we're doing a much broader range of work. But back then it was about saving men's lives. And it was called the Victorian AIDS Council Gay Men's Health Centre. Governments didn't quite know how to fund it even, you know, as a line item in their budget. So they created it as a health centre. Um, but just getting that funding and cutting through that hysteria and misinformation was trailblazing by those activists. Yeah, we, we were the first organisation in the country. So we're the oldest HIV organisation and, and also the oldest LGBTI community controlled health service um, as well. Uh, and government, you're right, refused to fund the Victorian AIDS Council. They saw it as an activist collective, um, refused to fund it, and they established the Gay Men's Community Health Centre at the time. Um, and that ran separately for three or four years. Um, and, and it was a difficult period that, you know, there was a lot of discrimination and a lot of threats in the media about gay men spreading AIDS and, and and by that point a lot of people were dying as well and there was a lot of grief in the community. Our staff and volunteers were dying, um, you know, and, and I think it was Adam Carr who suggested it's time to review the structure of the organisations and see if we should bring them back together. Uh, and in 1988 they, they held an, a review and then they agreed to bring the two organisations back together under Keith Harbour who was um, became the inaugural president or, or chair of that organisation. You've got fantastic sexual health infrastructure. That infrastructure meant the community here in Melbourne responded so quickly and so well to MPX, otherwise known as monkeypox. Monkeypox, yes. Um, had a meeting about it yesterday. Uh, so um, it, it did give us that ability, it, uh, our, our ability to communicate with the affected populations and gay and bisexual men and, and trans communities that are impacted on by MPOX um, did allow for us to move very, very quickly on that. And we, we were very successful in containing that and making sure it didn't spread into Australia. Um, but of the 15,000 people that were vaccinated in Victoria, we still have about 5,000 people in it to get their second shot. Um, so... We're encouraging everybody to contact us or, or your clinic and, and, and go back in and get your second shot. We do have small outbreaks. There's one in London. There's one in Thailand. There's one in Chicago right now. We're going to have to utilise the entire community. 
Because that could happen very easily, another outbreak, couldn't it? You know, northern summer, people travelling, people coming back. Um, it doesn't take much. No, it doesn't take much. And there is some uh, epidemiological modelling that suggests that if we don't get on top of it, there will be another major outbreak internationally. Um, so, so we do want to get people vaccinated. We have lots of vaccine. Back 12 months ago, we didn't have any vaccine and we were you know, trying to do what we could do. But right now we have a lot of vaccine available and, and all the major LGBTI clinics have, have access to it. 5,000 people, that is a lot of people that need their second dose. Yeah, yeah. 45 um, queer organisations have signed a letter urging the, the state government to do something about the attacks on drag and, and the trans community. Uh, I assume that you guys are at the helm of that. You're actively involved in that, yeah? Yeah, we're actively involved. Um, we wrote the press release, but Switchboard are leading a, a lot of that work. Um, it, it's interesting reflecting on 40 years. Um, you know, 1983, and my earliest memory of AIDS in Year 7 at a Catholic school in Gippsland uh, was when one of the kids wrote, someone has AIDS on the on the whiteboard and back in 1983. And then the other day I drove past a bus that had the rainbow plastered on the side of it and said, you are loved. And I thought, how far we've come. But then at the same time, we've got all this far-right activism, um, neo-Nazis marching in the streets and people attacking our communities. And, and just today I, I heard of a, a story of a young man who'd suicided because his family had abandoned him. And I thought, you know, in a lot of ways we've come a very long way, but there's also parts of our community that are still stuck, um, you know, in that turmoil and, and, you know, with a a lot of rigid religious and cultural views against our community. So there's a lot of fight still ahead of us. But once again, great having that community infrastructure in place with the support of government funding to be able to respond to, you know, social and health uh, threats. Yeah, yep. Um, we've got the infrastructure, you know, we've got a great government, but the government could be doing more. Um, It's fantastic. I think right now we have five queer upper house members in Victoria across all the parties, which is the first time we've ever had that level of um, our community being in government. Um, But we still need to be vigilant and and there's still a lot for us to do. Just because we got marriage doesn't mean it's all over and, and we're getting on with we're just the same as everybody else now. We, we still face huge levels of discrimination. We still have much greater levels of mental health and, and issues and suicidality. And, and as a community, there's still a lot of people out there who are very scared to come out. And particularly for the trans community, there's a lot of people who are very fearful of being out in public because of the abuse that may occur. You said the government needs to do more. What's at the top of the list? Uh, probably the top of the list, well, well, far-right extremism and, and what we do about that and how we stop, you know, people threatening my place and their Nazis and other groups threatening events, particularly the rural and regional and the youth events, which are, are their targets right now. Um, mental health, again, we've had the Royal Commission. Um, a lot of it's rolling out in all sorts of directions right now, um, but they need to be doing more about diversity within that. Um, they, they focused a lot on Aboriginal communities, but core communities and LGBTI communities and disability communities are still um, lagging behind. Um, women's health, you know, we've got the women's, the National Queer Women's Health Conference coming back to Melbourne this year that we set up about five, six years ago, and we get 400 women to that. Uh, and there's no government really talking about queer women's health. Um, HIV, of course, we can't forget. Sexual health, we can't forget. Uh, there's Shigella on the rise again in Australia, so we, we need to focus back on that. 
and then I think, you know, as, as queer organisations, we need to start thinking about what can Australia do for asylum seekers and, and for what's going on elsewhere in the world. We are a leading light in, in LGBTI rights and, and we need to start thinking about how we can, you know, help, help LGBTI people elsewhere in the world. That's a big project for the federal government and so true. We have all this wealth. We have all this great infrastructure. It's time to share it with those people who are really in terrible situations overseas that need our refuge. Yeah, we've actually we've got three exhibitions coming up as part of our 40th. Um, if people want to go to our websites, you can see them. One's on the history of the organisation, one's on the more sexually explicit uh, health promotion we've done, which will be held at the lead. But we're also doing a human rights exhibition down at the Pride Centre and there's a forum on, on the 19th of July talking exactly about what can Australia be doing in that space. In 40 years, what do you think Thorn Harbour Health's greatest achievement has been? Uh, wow, that's a big question. We're still here. <laughs> um, we've certainly grown. We're still. Uh, I think our, our greatest achievement is probably we're still attached to our communities. Um, I've been with the organisation now for ten years. It's actually my tenth anniversary next week um, with the organisation, and we have recommitted to serving our communities. We're a community-controlled organisation. Our members elect our board. We will always be accountable to our community. And volunteerism, um, whereas a lot of people think of volunteering as cheap work, volunteerism for us is a service we provide to to the community because particularly if you're coming out later in life, it's hard to work your way into back into the community. And so the opportunity to volunteer is as much a service as any other service we provide. Um, so it's and, and they go right back to the start of our organisation um, volunteerism and community control and, and our commitment to those is ongoing. I mean, you said you're still here. It was kind of like, you know, there was some a little bit of surprise about that. But I guess you're kind of, you know, delving into history and thinking, well, there were times when politicians were demanding that you be closed. Yes, uh, we we were just talking about that during during the break. Um, you know, uh, when you say yes, say yes to safe sex, the two boys kissing campaign, there was a big push for us to be defunded then. There was also around that same time, you might remember it, there was a swap card uh, campaign and, and, you know, there were accusations that we were trying to get teenagers into homosexuality and there were calls for us to be defunded then. And also uh, we now operate in South Australia because our South Australian sister organisation got defunded. Um, as well. So, and, and at one point Queensland was defunded as well, though they're back on their feet up there. Um, but the Campbell Newman government defunded them. So it's not, it's not out of the realm of possibility that organisations like ours, um, you know, governments attack them. Well, yeah, and if you do get a right-wing government, I mean, that's happened, as you say, in South Australia and Queensland. Um, we can't take things for granted. As Alison Thorne often says when, when she comes on this show, that what we gain can be so easily taken away. Yeah, and I, and I think we forget that. But if you look at what's happening in America right now, it's very obvious that that, that can occur. What else should the government be doing here in Victoria? Oh, look, there's lots to do. I think government needs to be talking to community. And, and, you know, when we say what can government be doing, we're pretty lucky. The rest of the country looks to us and goes, they've got it so great in Victoria. Um, and we've got a government that's looking at a whole bunch of legislative reforms. They've just now launched the anti-vilification uh, reforms. And, and so that's up for public comment right now. And, and we'll be um, entering our, our thoughts into that. Um, but I think, you know, we... We are a large part of the community, LGBTI people. We're, we're over 10% of the population, depending on what you look at. Um, and we need our own health services. We need our own legal services. We need our own organisations. Um, and, and I think government need to start thinking strategically about funding organisations like us right across the state so that you don't have to drive into Abbotsford or into St Kilda to receive a service, that you can get, get it wherever you live. 
across the state. I mean, just the just where we are are at in history. Yes, there's all these attacks, but for activists involved in Thorn Harbour in those early years, what the organisation is now and what's been achieved for the community is kind of like a dream come true, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's we we often forget how successful we are, um, and, and I think our. our Anniversary is an opportunity to reflect on where we've come from, where Phil Carswell, our inaugural president, is going to be um, at our ball tomorrow night. He'll be reflecting on that and he's going to be speaking at a number of events. David Menager will also be speaking at them. Um, Dr David Bradford, who was one of the doctors at that original meeting, will be reflecting on it. So, you know, we have been very successful over 40 years. We've been successful in stopping HIV spreading into the general community in in assisting and um, helping people through that and reducing the impact. And we've also been very successful in broadening out our health response into other areas. Um, a, a lot of our uh, life members will, will be around over the next couple of weeks and, and will be talking to us and we're in touch with all of our past presidents at the moment. I've spoken to, I think, all of them uh, over the last couple of weeks. Um, so it's an exciting time to be looking back on, on how far we've come. That ball tomorrow night is going to be a great celebration. Yes, it will be. We've got 430 people, and if you include volunteers and entertainment, I think we're up around 480 people uh, who will be at the Melbourne Town Hall um, c- celebrating the success of the organisation. And our current president and Phil, our first president, will both be speaking to the audience. At- Simon Ruth, happy birthday for Thorn Harbour Health. Thanks for popping into the studio. Thanks, James, and happy NADOC week. There's kind of a lot of a lot of things that are coming up to the fore at the moment as well, particularly in terms of the way that we imagine, for example, essential work and also sort of essential community life or essential caregiving um, and how those how those function. If we think about sort of the way that queer family often takes very, very sort of different forms and very you know important and meaningful forms that often don't match the picture of normative, heteronormative family life, but how so many of the of the affordances or the restrictions or the kind of the, the government governmental sort of imagining of the way that we should live and what we need to live and what we need to survive really is shaped around heteronormativity. You know, it's around the family life in the suburb, as opposed to many, you know, single individuals who have shared queer family, both sexual and community connections that sustain them and that kind of give them give them life and give them give them sort of energy and comfort and safety and security and support. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. In Your Face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV, and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook.